You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 20. Today we're asking the question, what is reality-based safety science? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The podcast is produced every week and the show notes can be found at safetyofwork.com. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So Drew, what's today's question? Well, hi David, hi listeners. Every 10 10 episodes of the podcast, we've given ourselves a bit of permission to talk about our own research. We don't want to make this the What's Drew and David Published Recently podcast, but we do want to have a chance to plug our own work. And we've just co-authored a paper, along with Rob Alexander from University of York and Hossam Abelsad from University of Queensland. And it's a paper that examines where we're going in safety science a sort of big picture look at the whole field. And by this, we don't mean the sort of usual argument about safety one and safety two or new view versus old view. We want to look at the big picture of how people create and defend all sorts of theories and practices in safety and what we can do to make that work better. And we think that this is a bigger question than just disputes over particular theories at the moment. So the paper we'll be using is not itself a research study, but it is based on a close and critical examination of lots of published and unpublished literature in safety science. So this is the bit, Drew, where we normally introduce the title of the paper and and the authors. So the paper is titled A Manifesto for Reality-Based Safety Science, uh, published in 2020 uh, in the Journal of Safety Science. It was actually part of a special issue on the future of safety science. Um, so Drew, do you want to, you, you came up with the title, uh, Reality-Based Safety Science. Do you want to share a little bit about the background to that title? Uh, sure. So the way special issues tend to work is that they tend to be invited papers. Not always. Often there's an open call as well as the invited papers. But in this one, they reached out to a number of people and said, look, What's your vision? Where do you think this is all going? And a lot of the people who were invited were, in fact, associate editors of the journal, because our opinions kind of matter when it comes to what sorts of papers do we want to accept? What sorts of papers do we want to encourage? Where do we want to steer things? Um, And so when we were thinking about, well, when I personally was thinking about what I wanted to contribute... I didn't want to just plug my own personal approach or my own personal theories. I get frustrated as an editor with some of the stuff that I see coming across my desk quite routinely. I find that I have the same conversations, particularly with young researchers, about their view of what counts as good research and what they think will be a useful project. So what I really wanted to do was put down my own personal vision for If I was starting in safety science, where would I like someone to tell me the field was going so that I had a path that I could go along that is following along with the future of the field rather than treading along a bit of the past? I reached out to a couple of my common co-authors 
Um, so, David, you and I have written a fair bit together, and we've got our, I think, a bit of a shared vision for our own research of what counts as good and what doesn't count as good. And a guy called Rob Alexander, who I've also written a fair bit with, um, Rob is kind of my writing mentor. He takes a real critical look at stuff that we're co-authoring and keeps me writing smoothly and clearly and challenges all of the ideas I want to put in. And he and I have written a bit before that's critical of some of the research practices in safety science. Um, and then the other author, Hassam, is actually a PhD student. Um, I happened to be talking to him at the time when we were writing the paper and he had a couple of really good ideas about specific parts of it. So that's how he got roped in as a co-author as well. So, do we published we published um, this paper and it's it's sort of, it's a manifesto, sort of a, a roadmap, if you like, for how we see the future and, and the changes that the safety science discipline should try to make, I suppose, in our opinion, should try to make. And I know we've got, we've got some listeners, I, I assume that our listener base is, is a large part practitioner and, and also, you know, some part researcher. So why is this an important conversation to have between both sort of like the academic side and the practitioner side? So, or, or more clearly is, um, why shouldn't the practitioners tune out now for the rest of this this uh, podcast? Oh, that, that's a really good question and a question that's not written out on our script either. <laughs> so let, let me have a bit of a think about that. I, I guess, so the title Manifesto and the other part of the title, Reality-Based Safety Science, come from two sort of big influences we had in writing this. And both of those influences are neither academics criticising the practice of a field or practitioners criticising the research of the field. They're collaborations of people from practice and from research who wanted the relationship to work better. Um, so the first influence, and this is what prompted me to use the term manifesto, is of course the Agile manifesto. Um, the Agile manifesto comes from software engineering, and it comes from this perception that what academia was contributing to the development of software was way too much heavyweight guidance on how software should be written and not nearly enough concern for what made good software writers write good software. And they saw lots and lots of useful gui useless guidance that was in fact acting as constraints and burdening down the development of good software. And what really struck me was this idea of a manifesto, not as a critique, this is, it was not the agile critique, it was not the agile attack, it wasn't the safety one versus safety two of software. It was a group of people saying, we want to do better, and we plan to do better, and we invite you to join us in our aspirations to do better. And the second big influence was a movement called evidence-based medicine. Now, this came about through this idea that practitioners of medicine were tending to treat patients based on a very scientific understanding of how the human body worked, but very much based on their own personal experience then of what worked to treat patients. And there was a strong perception that there was a lot of evidence about what worked and didn't work that wasn't making its way into practice. And so the evidence-based medicine movement was not academics clubbing together and yelling at doctors saying, listen to us. It was a reform movement in the practitioner community to realise that doctors are researchers. 
It's not that you have people doing research and you have people applying medicine. It's you have people who are applying medicine to patients, and that's the data that we need to collect on mass to find generally what works. And once we know generally what works, we then need doctors to apply their own specialist skills to the particular patient in front of them, combining their knowledge of the patient with their knowledge of the evidence. Yeah, so Drew, I think we've we've spoken a bit about the gap between safety science research or safety science evidence and um, safety professionals or safety practitioners in their organisations and the application of that that evidence to what they're doing or or the lack of. So, you know, what we're really hoping for in as we move further forward is to create a much stronger bridge and connection between the practitioner community and the and the research community and sort of we lay out we lay out a series of commitments in the manifesto that we'll go through. I think there's seven uh, seven commitments or so. But before we do that, there was um, there's a big context around here. You you came up with this giants and dwarfs metaphor. Describe that because that 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 line in the that line in the uh, paper has received a fair bit of attention. The one that says something like, you know, we don't apologise for um, the spikes on our boots when we're standing on the shoulders of giants. Okay, so, so the thinking here is that if you ask people to name researchers in safety, I'm willing to bet that if you pick 50 people and say, name a safety researcher, that you're only actually going to end up with three or four names. Or possibly even you're going to get three or four theories without people even knowing what those names are. You can make a pretty quick list. We can have Safety 1 and Safety 2, high reliability organisations, safety climate, safety culture, behavioural safety. And many practitioners might be able to name one or two names associated with each of those theories. Those are the giants in safety. And a lot of researchers tend to align themselves with one of those particular views. And so you'll have, for example, so Eric Holnagel talks about resilience. He's got a particular technique, which is just a sort of like sub part of his thinking about resilience. It's called FRAM, Functional Resonance Accident Model. And you'll have people who want to do their whole PhDs applying FRAM. Uh, You've got Nancy Levison, who as part of her broader thinking about Uh, systems-based safety engineering, comes up with a model called STAMP. And you have people who have entire conferences just talking about each individual person, talking about how they have applied STAMP. So we've got these few giants, and scurrying around the feet of these giants are dwarves living in their shadows. People who are applying the ideas and working with their thinking about safety entirely constrained by the thinking of one of these giants. But nowhere is anyone actually updating the big theory. So we've had dozens now of stamp conferences, and not one of those has changed stamp as a theory. It's all just about, let me take stamp and let me not dare to criticise anything about it. Let me just apply it. We've got dozens of people who follow behind Safety 1 and Safety 2. But the fundamental idea of Safety 1 and Safety 2 is the same as it was when the book was first published, including all of the problems with it that everyone recognised from the very start. Um, so, so this is the concern, is that the, peop- the big thinkers are not uh, empirical researchers, they're theorists. And the empiricists are not theorists 
or not even updating the theories through their empirical work. They're just applying the theories. And I think perhaps the biggest uh, example of all of that is safety culture. And 30, 35 years now of, of safety culture, we're really no closer to understanding it or, or knowing how to work with it in our organisations than we were 35 years ago. Yeah, and that, that, that's pretty damning given the thousands of papers published on it. That, you know, we, we still have literature coming out that doesn't make a clear distinction between safety culture and safety climate. Or even, I would argue, even any clear agreement amongst researchers about what precisely the difference is. Um, each individual is pretty clear on the difference, but we don't have a community consensus or development of the ideas. Um, you can say the same for STAMP. You can say the same for safety cases. You can say the same for safety too. Um, I think resilience is probably going to head the same way if we do, don't do something about it. Yeah. So we, we laid out seven commitments in the in the paper and they were, they were literally personal commitments that we were making and inviting others to make with uh, with how they approach their safety science research going forward. So Drew, we might, we might go through these seven commitments and talk about the problem and, and, and how we frame the solution in the manifesto paper. So the first the first commitment was that we will investigate work as our core object of interest. So, you know, traditionally, I think safety has all, always been about studying accidents and we're proposing that we should always focus on work as the object of interest and the object of understanding or the object of research. Tell us a little bit about this, the difference between studying accidents and studying work. Okay, we, we've talked before on the podcast about the problems and limitations with studying accidents. Just, I don't want to go deeply into that because we tend to do that anytime we do a paper that's based off accidents. But the problem is that when you study an accident, all of the analysis you do is necessarily driven by counterfactual reasoning and hindsight bias. You're looking with the knowledge of the outcome and you're trying to judge the path by which we got there. And we're trying to use that to make claims about what could or should have been done differently. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't do that. The trouble is, though, when you do it, what you end up with are big picture explanations. They're usually untested and they result in these theoretical claims about what can prevent accidents. And frankly, we've already got enough big picture untested explanations. We're not adding to the advancement of the field by coming up with new versions of this. You know, you're not making anything better unless you can show that your theory is somehow better. And this process isn't a process which can tell you which theory wins. It's just a game of who can make the nicest narrative. But on the other hand, we've got this huge industry that exists in order to prevent accidents. And if you look in this industry, you can find pretty much all of the stuff that the theorists say we should be doing, someone is doing somewhere. And yet the accidents are still happening. And so if we know that when you follow the theories, accidents happen, and when you don't follow the theories, accidents happen, then there's got to be some gap somewhere in the theory. And we're not going to find those gaps just by coming up with new big pictures. So I think we would we would be of the view, or I'd be of the view, Drew, that you know, safety is an emergent property of work. So we've got to understand and and intervene in the core work activity itself. So so safety research, therefore, at its core, becomes about studying work. You know, what what makes work safe? Uh, what makes work not be safe? It, it's 
a little bit interesting to come at safety. We actually just can't come at safety from coming at safety. We have to come at safety from coming at work. Yeah, no, I agree. Absolutely. And I think that that makes a lot of sense that when we talk about principles of safety, we're really talking about principles of work that are true across lots of different types of work. We're saying, look, when you look at work, generally, when you look at work as it happens in hospitals or on construction sites, or when people are designing spaceships, there are some things that are universally true about work and relevant to whether an accident is going to happen. And that's ultimately what we're trying to come at with safety. And so to help our, our listeners sort of be clear, when we say studying work, Andrew's given a few examples there, you know, what we want to know is how does work happen? The basics of, of, of what does work look like? How do, how do workers make sense of what they're doing and, and what their co-workers are doing? Uh, how does work change and vary and, and you know, in response to what? Uh, and what are the factors that cause it to, to remain consistent over time? What events occur during work that are meaningful for workers and, and where do workers take their cues for how they then change the nature of their work throughout their work day or, or work shift? And there's some of the types of questions that we, we really want to understand when we actually went to get, get right down in the messy details of uh, how people interact with their work every day. And if you think about it, this leaves room for a lot of different approaches to safety. So if you're interested very much in the human and cultural side, you can ask questions about who performs work and how does their identity influence the work. If you're interested in the engineering side of things, you can say, you know, where does work take place? What equipment is used for work? How is that equipment designed? If you're interested in your organisational sociology, you say, how is work organised? What's the effect of organisation design on the conduct of work? And... There is just so much potential research because for the word work here, you can substitute anything you like. You, there is an entire thesis waiting to be written just on substituting work with just a couple of these questions for Uber drivers. Yeah, so how does Uber driving happen? You, what's the identity of Uber drivers? What do they think they're doing? Do they think of themselves as drivers or do they think of themselves as just people who are happening to do Uber driving work. How does this change over time? How do you get into Uber driving? How do you leave Uber driving? What's your career path in the middle? There you go. That's an entire thesis. And that's just your one type of work and a couple of the questions. So there's a lot of potential here. Yeah. And I think, I think Drew, just for our practitioners who are listening as well, you know, I say a little bit when I talk about the role of safety professionals, you know, the object of understanding being work, not, not being safety. So, you know, we'd advise safety professionals to go out into their organization and don't go out there with an audit checklist. Don't go out there just after an accident to do an investigation. Just go out into your organization and look and listen and, and understand how, how work happens, how it functions. And we're, we're, we're sort of telling researchers to do the same thing. Put down your, your, your badly designed questionnaires, put, put down your preconceived ideas about what safety is and get out there and understand the work that people do. Yeah, the way I like to think of it is... Looking at accidents can be fun, but it's really a very niche side interest compared to the mainline field of safety science. It's like you have some historians who like to say, you know, what would the world be like if the Nazis had won? That's fun to do. It may, in fact, be informative, but that's not mainstream history to do that sort of work. It's a fun side hobby. The real meat and bones of safety is studying work, not studying accidents. 
So that's our first commitment to study work. And our second commitment in, in the manifesto was that we will describe current work before we prescribe changes. So this is this is um, making sure that we're descriptive before we're normative, I suppose, Drew, in the way that we approach our research. Is that is that the way to think about this? Yeah. And this is the first conversation I have with every new PhD student. And it's not just the first conversation because I often have to have these conversations multiple times. And the conversation just sort of starts with me trying to talk about descriptive and normative and ends up with me almost yelling or writing in capital letters on the blackboard. Stop trying to fix things. I think people get into safety because they want to make the world a better place. But research is not about finding solutions. And the way to realise that is just translate it to almost any other field of study that you take seriously. Astronomers aren't out there to make stars better. Physicists aren't trying to work out what are the right laws of physics to substitute for the ones we currently have. You Almost anyone, not, not, not everyone I'll admit, but most people who research psychology and neuroscience is about understanding how the brain works now, not trying to change the brain to make it work differently. You, everyone in all of those fields wants to improve the world, but they know that if you've got to describe and understand the world before you can use that knowledge to make the world better. I think I was one of those PhD students, Drew, at, at the start, because I came into my PhD on the safety profession with uh, you know, dead set intending to try to figure out how to fix the profession during my PhD. And by the, by the time I got to the end of it, I not only didn't understand it, I probably uh, had to admit that I understood it. Well, not understood it less than when I started, but had more questions when I finished than I than I did at the start, and only just starting now to figure out how to translate some of the things that I found during my own PhD research into ways that it might actually be able to make improvements for the way that professionals do their job. Well, David, you know, but our listeners don't, might not that all of the advice that I give to PhD students is precisely because that's advice that I wish people had given me. I got 10 years out of the end of my PhD project before I realised that I'd spent the whole time trying to fix the world and I shouldn't have. And it was only then that I really started doing research on the topic that my PhD was about. So safety researchers uh, are wanting to take shortcuts. You know, what, what we'd be saying is that we're not even at the point where we can describe work well enough to start to put in place theories about how to, how to improve that work to improve safety. Is so, so is that what we're saying? Yeah, and I think that's one of the areas where researchers and industry need to work together a lot better because you can't get through a full research cycle in a couple of months. If you're asking someone to do a project in six months, what you're doing is assuming that they've already got the answer and you're wanting them to make that answer bespoke for you and implement it in your own organisation. So that's a standard consulting task, but it's not a research task. If you want someone to do that, do research like that, then you're shortcutting through all of the steps that make it good research. Um, Understanding the problem takes more than a couple of months. Just understanding what the literature has already said about understanding the problem takes more than a couple of months. So we've got to sort of turn around this idea that practical research is about deliverables. We definitely want research to be relevant for the real world. We definitely want research to be useful. We definitely don't want research to be pie in the sky. 
But we need to understand that in order to do that, research needs to stop taking shortcuts. It's the shortcuts that make it unrealistic. We need to slow it down enough to do each part well, and to recognise that it's just as beneficial for industry to get a good description than it is for industry to get an untested solution. Yeah, absolutely. So so the solution here, we're saying we actually want a virtuous cycle of studying and describing what's happening right now in organisations, you know, the way that people perform work in your organisation. And we want to analyse that that insight and knowledge to build theories of how work happens, how organisations function. And what we want to then do is actually use those theories to design interventions and experiments and improvements in a way that lets us test these theories and, and understand the, the application of these theories in, in different settings and refine and, and, and improve these theories over time. And I think, Drew, what you're saying is this cycle has to happen slowly enough so that we can actually do each part of that well. Yeah. And, and, and I think, I mean, when you describe things as a cycle, you never quite know where to start. Um, and I think the sort of core of this commitment is we think that where safety science is right now, we need to slow down the description thing. We need to work out what we're interested in, and then we just need to spend time describing it and throw a whole range of methods at that description. You pick something that you're interested in, pick a type of work, interview people about it, watch it. Sure, do surveys about it. Experience it for yourself. Go and do that work for a while. Take part in the work. Tinker a little bit with the work, not in order to fix it, just in order to make sure you know what's going on. And good researchers shouldn't be like picking one method and saying, I'm going to understand work by doing one of these things but throw the whole battery of measurement at the descriptive task. So the next commitment, Drew, after describing before we we prescribe solutions, is that we'll investigate and theorise before we start measuring. You've taken to caps locks in caps lock in the in the script here, so I might just let you step straight in now. And so so, so what do you want to say about investigating and theorising before we start measuring? Okay, single biggest problem in safety research. I say, as an editor who sits with studies, some of them that are eventually going to be published, most of them which are going to be rejected, flowing across my desk, safety researchers waste a heck of a lot of time and money and research careers on badly designed Likert scales. Just for clarity, a Likert scale is one of those things where you've got like five bubbles, one to five, and you rate them. They are incredibly difficult to get right. You have to have some sort of benchmark in the first place, because otherwise you don't know what a three or four means. There is an entire science of psychology devoted to analysing why Likert scales usually don't even work as a measurement tool. And yet we think that this is a great form of research. So we take these badly designed scales and then we feed them into these complicated models that compare the variables we think we're extracting from these scales. And the whole time all we're doing is just looking at how people have ticked boxes. We're not looking at how people have worked. We're not looking at how accidents have happened. It's got no real connection to the real world. And of course, the biggest single example of this is just that people keep reinventing different versions of safety culture or safety climate surveys over and over and over and over again. So Drew, what's the, um, so, so I, I, I haven't personally done, I'm glad now that I haven't personally done a, a survey based um, research paper but but i mean we have spoken before on the podcast about you know really well designed open questions and and collection of data through surveys in that way and you know so we're not saying that that they don't have a place but what we are saying is that um it's very easy to just uh 
pull a questionnaire together, go and get 300 people to do it or 200 people to do it and, and, and run some statistics and then, you know, you know, write a paper and, and you're really not contributing uh, what we'd be, we'd be saying, you're really not contributing, you know, a great deal. So, so Drew, what's the solution then? Okay. So, so here's a sort of simple checklist for, if you want to ask someone a question that's got a number as an answer, then you've got to realize that what you're trying to do is measure something. So the very first question to just ask yourself is, what is this thing that you're trying to measure? Is it even a thing? Do we know that it exists? Do we have any evidence that it exists? What sort of thing is it? Is it a psychological phenomena? Is it an organizational interaction? Is it something that happens at work? Is it a system? Is it a process? Is it an opinion? What does it look like? How does it vary? Does it tend to go up and down within a person? Does it tend to stay stable within a person? Does it tend to go up and down in an organization? Does it tend to stay stable in an organization? Does it stay the same when you measure it twice? And then have a look at what other people have found that look like this thing. Um, so let me take an example. Let's say you want to measure trust. Okay, so what other things are out there that are like trust? Is psychological safety like trust? What's the difference between them? Do we have a measurement that can tell the difference between them? Is one of them an aspect of the other thing? Or is the relationship reversed? Or are they two separate things? Or are they two things that overlap? Find out. Find out what other people have said about those things. And do that for every other thing that might look like this thing. And only then do you ask, how do I measure it? Once you really understand what it is that you want to measure. And after that, there's a whole heap of questions like whether you're actually measuring the thing that you set out to describe in the first place. But I think if you ask yourself those questions, 99% of the time, you'll have finished your research project before you ever get round to the point of wanting to put in place a Likert scale to measure it. Yeah, I mean, it's so, you know, without thinking deeply about those questions, Drew, it's so easy to go, my manager is committed to safety on a scale of one to five and get a whole heap of answers and, 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 and feel like that you are, you are, you are understanding what's, what's going on. But, uh, but when you actually step back, it's like your deepity from, uh, from the Brady report last week, the concept of that, it, it sounds good on the surface, but when you actually dig deeper, you go, well, actually this, this is, this is meaningless. So after we, we describe, or we actually investigate and theorize before we measure, so if people are following along. We kind of we've, we're focusing on on researching work. We're describing and 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 understanding that work really deeply before we start to put in place you know ideas and models of what happens. Then we're we're really investigating and theorizing before we start measuring. And then third, we talk here our fourth our fourth commitment. Sorry about directly observing the practices that we investigate. So this is the one that had the most I think controversy amongst the people who were writing the paper. Because I think we agreed on the problem, but we were unsure whether this was certain enough or sure enough that everyone should do this to actually make it into a commitment. And you, as you can see from the paper, we eventually decided that, yes, it should be a commitment. But I think it's worth bearing in mind that sort of we can agree on the problem without necessarily agreeing on the solution to this one. The, the problem, I think, is pretty clear, which is that we've got a bad habit in safety of collecting data which doesn't directly represent the question that we're trying to answer. So I've, I've got a list of examples that I've made. David, David, you can see the list in front of you. Are any of these that you sort of particularly agree or disagree with? Oh, look, I think I, there's this idea of us 
believing that self-reported behavior is going to be the same as as an actual observed behavior so when you ask people what do you do you know you can't so that's very different to actually watching what people are are doing so drew is that that that's one that i really like because that that then that really challenged me to go well you know even things like interviews and focus groups where we actually ask people you know how they think about their work and how they normally perform their work and we're still a step removed from people actually doing the work yeah, so, so I think actually we're sort of jumping ahead a little bit to the solution, and I think that might actually be clearer than talking too much about the problem. But I'll, I might jump back to the problem in a second. If you think about every type of research we do is good for something, it's just a question of matching what that something is with what you're trying to do. So like psychometric surveys, you what are they good for? They're designed for comparing people to other people and nothing else. Right? You know, that, that's what an IQ test is is it's not even like describing your intelligence. It's about comparing your intelligence to the standard population. That's what a personality test is. Is It's not about describing how personality works. It's about compared to a typical person, where do you sit? Sort of higher or lower than average on each of these set of five traits. So psychometric surveys are really good for that. Pretty much useless for anything else. What about non-validated quantitative surveys? They're good for collecting demographic data and not much else. So when you fill out a census form, you, we know that 40% of the population is a particular age or 20% of the population went to university or something like that. That's sort of descriptive statistics. That's what surveys are good for. Interviews are really good for understanding people's subjective experiences. So understanding what people did through their own eyes and through their own memories which is very valuable so long as you remember that that's not understanding their objective experiences. It's not understanding what happens. It's understanding what they experienced. If you want to understand what actually happened, you've got to be there and watch what happened. So, Drew, I think, it, I, I think it's worth just cycling back around on the problem. If, if for nothing else, then to give our listeners a sense of what to be wary of if they do see some of these things in, in research papers. So, so let's just whip through them really fast about where we see inappropriate data use in safety science. So, so self-interested reports are always bad. So asking a manager about how good a manager, manager they are or asking a safety department how good safety is within their organisation, the data is always going to be coloured by their own self-interest. I've almost got into the habit now with recent safety science research that talks about organisations. Unless it's a paper about safety practitioners, jump to who was interviewed and if they collected the data from safety practitioners and the paper is not about safety practitioners, trash the paper. It's answering what safety practitioners think. It's not answering anything objective about the organisation. Yeah. And where we see papers with guesses at frequencies of risks being represented as actual risk, where it's like, you know, the risk of this is X because 10 people decided that the risk of this was X. Yeah, or, or what are the 10 most important challenges in construction safety today? And the researchers have never been to a construction site. All they've done is asked a whole heap of people on construction sites what they think are the biggest risks. So what they're telling is they're publishing a paper to tell people on construction sites what people on construction sites already believe are the risks of construction sites. It's a bit of a circular argument. <laughs> Got to ask yourself what you're doing with your life when you're <laughs> publishing papers like that. And then, you know, being very mindful when people are reporting, uh, either reporting about their own behaviour or reporting about events 
and then using these as measures of action, uh, sorry, substituting this information or claiming this information to be equivalent to the actual behavior or the actual frequency of events. So how many times has this happened to you in the last 12 months is very different to asking someone that question. And the answer that they give you is, is very different to how many times something might have actually happened to them in the last 12 months. And this one's really sneaky because you might be tempted to tell yourself, particularly if you're a researcher, that, well, I can't access the actual data. I can't work out exactly how many times this happened. The best I've got is how often it was reported. But then you look at what you're claiming and what you're claiming is something like that safety culture is going to drive down the number of accidents. And you realize that the independent variable is going to be more powerful in changing reporting than it is in changing the underlying statistic. Um, and that's where the indirection becomes a real problem. So that fourth commitment there is a, is a really important one about directly observing practices that we, we want to investigate or understand. And the same is true for practitioners in your own organization. Just before we move on, I want to point out that now this is something that practitioners won't necessarily see unless you start reading academic papers, but is certainly relevant to people wanting to do safety research, and you'll start to run into this really quickly, is there's a current fad of using complicated techniques to massage this bad data. So you start to see lots and lots of papers coming out where they've got words like neural nets, AI, deep learning, analytic hierarchy process, fuzzy logic, big data in the titles of the paper. And all of those things are a clue that this is a way of massaging quantitative data. Um, and that's the time to start getting really sceptical and ask, okay, so what is the data that you are massaging? If it's not good data to start with, then it's not going to be useful conclusions at the end of it. Survey data is survey data, no matter what method you use to process it. And survey data can't tell you what's going on on, on an organization, you know, on a site. Yes, yeah, um, good. So we move on to number five, Drew. Yep. So the fifth commitment there is that we will, um, and I really like this commitment, that we'll position each piece of research in an appropriate disciplinary context, informed by the research practices and recent advances in that discipline. Um, and Drew, this is one that I, I really like. And, you know, when we started doing a lot of, a little bit of digging into the institutional work literature, and I, I sort of side branched there for a, about six months into institutional logics. And I think I came back to you at one point and I said, like, the institutional theory has just moved on from organizational culture as a useful construct. It's got all these now well-developed ideas about institutional logics at the individual and, and the macro scale of organizations. It's got all these ways of describing and explaining what's going on in organizations and you know, all this really relevant theory for, for safety. And we had this, this kind of discussion about the safety theory is sort of lagging maybe decades behind the parent disciplines like organizational psychology or, or some other parent disciplines. So do you want to talk a little bit more about this problem? Because we sort of ignore the parent disciplines a lot in safety science. Yeah. So, so this is something that even if you're aware of it, you can still fall into the trap. Even before I became a full-time researcher, uh, I was saying that I thought that safety management techniques tended to lag at least 10 years behind anything that didn't have safety in the title. You could pretty much pick up any management fad and 10 years later you could add safety to it and you'd see it everywhere. So two things there. One of them is I think I was being a little bit optimistic with the 10 years there. Uh, David, I think you're on record as claiming more like 30. Yeah. And the other was that even knowing this, I 
I did things like I thought I was making really original insights about safety culture. So, you know, I don't know if this has occurred to anyone else, but have you ever sort of noticed that if safety culture was real, if there really was this thing called safety culture and it influenced the way people think and understand and talk about safety culture and talk about safety, then if you're in two different organisations and each organisation is reading a safety culture survey, then the culture is going to influence the way they think and understand and interpret and fill out the survey. So you can't possibly use the answers to the survey to measure the differences between the two organisations. Now that was obvious to me, but I also thought I was making an original observation when I said it. And so I fell into the trap. It turns out that people outside of safety in organisational culture research had highlighted this problem back in the early 1980s. And in fact, they'd just totally moved on. They'd realised that this was a problem, realised that, you know, culture is real, but we can't measure it like this. So this idea of sort of quantifying culture or analysing culture through survey or psychometric instruments is just a totally doomed project. Unfortunately, by that time, safety had already picked that up. And so the really interesting question is, how come most safety culture researchers don't know that? And it's not that safety culture researchers are stupid. Multiple times, people in safety have uncovered this same problem and even published papers about it. But everyone who does that then stops doing safety culture measurement work because they know it's a doomed project, they know it's not wasting time on. And so the people who keep publishing are the ones who just don't quite get it. And so if you're a new researcher coming in, all of these papers that are published are all from the people who don't understand what's going on outside of safety. And all the people who do understand are not bothering to publish about it. Yeah, and I think, Drew, if you're a safety researcher, you tend to to look for the, the core body of evidence around, around safety. So even when you're doing your literature searches in your databases, you're using safety as a keyword search. So you will search for safety culture if you're writing a paper about safety culture. Um, and so I assume it would be quite rare for someone to go, well, actually, no, I'm going to do a thorough read of you know, what's been published in the last three to five years of organisational culture and use that before I start writing my safety culture paper. Um, so, so I actually did a test of this in preparing for the podcast. And I didn't want to pick on safety culture either because I think we pick on safety culture enough. No. So, so the one I picked was Myers-Briggs. So I'm, I'm guaranteed to offend some of our listeners here. Myers-Briggs is well known to be pseudoscience. But I'm going to forgive anyone who wants to argue with me. And the reason I'm going to forgive you is for this reason. If you do a search on Google Scholar or on Crossref or in your university library search engine and you search for Myers-Briggs and safety, every single hit you get for the first few pages will be people using Myers-Briggs as a measurement tool in a peer-reviewed published paper. So you're clear they will be all recent papers. You'll assume, look, this is obvious that this is a well-known, well-used tool that is appropriate for measuring personality and for using person to checking whether personality has an impact on safety. Here's the thing though. If you do the same search, you just remove the word safety, you just search for Myers-Briggs and you search all of the top psychology journals, then the only hits you get will be from the 1970s and they'll all be papers that when, when they first started developing modern personality measurement theory, they, there was this spate of papers that came out that said, like, we used to think that you couldn't measure personality. All we had was all this pseudoscience like Myers-Briggs. But we think that there's actually a way of doing it. 
And so that's all you get. Either in safety, lots of people using it uncritically, no publications criticizing it. And in psychology, nothing criticizing it any either because no one's been talking about it since the 1970s. So it's actually really hard if you don't know the answer to this question for a researcher to come in and say, is Myers-Briggs an appropriate tool to use? And lots of people just look at the, that apparent evidence and say, well, sure, in safety it is. Yeah, so that, that commitment I think is really important for, for researchers um, to, to position their safety research within the context of and, and, and position it within the parent discipline literature. And even for our, our practitioners in, in organizations and, you know, where they're getting their insights from, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of stuff that doesn't have safety in the title that could be more useful to you in your role for safety than, uh, than the things that do have safety in the title. Um, and we might do something in the next couple of episodes, Drew. We might go and pick a piece of research out of one of these parent disciplines just to maybe just show how, how some of that research can be applied back into safety. Yeah, th th that's a good idea. You do just a quick list of examples of the type of things that this matters for. Obviously, the really big one is organisational science. Organisational science has just diverged from safety discussion of organisations almost completely. Um, and that's something that I know you're sort of trying to bring back a little bit, David. And there's a few others like you who are trying to bring modern day organisational science and theories of institutions back into safety research. Forecasting theory is another big one. How do you predict the future? That's what risk assessment is supposedly all about, particularly the use of expert opinions to do that. There's a whole subfield of economics that's been working really intensively on this, and safety is still using methods from the 1960s. Behaviour change and social psychology, a bit of a mixed bag, but mostly it's still this pattern that we tend to copy things across. They get discredited or disproved, and no one in safety ever realises that they've been debunked. And so we keep using the old stuff that's been debunked instead of the new stuff that's creditable. So Drew, number, number six was, uh, was when researching safety methods, we will prioritise real world case studies over worked examples. And I'm not sure I still completely understand, understand the difference between our real world case studies and worked examples. So you might have to help me out, um, at least for starters, and, and hopefully help our listeners out in the process. Okay, so, so this is another one that I find myself saying a lot to other researchers, particularly young researchers. And usually it comes with me saying, that's not a case study. Stop calling it a case study. <laughs> so let me just be very quick and clear about the difference. A case study is where you study a real world thing in its natural setting. So you go out and find an example of something as it's currently happening in the real world and you study it. If researchers get involved in that thing at all, they're getting involved as embedded observers. They're not trying to take control of it. So if the researchers are influencing, if the researchers are controlling it, if the researchers are doing it, it stops being a case study and it becomes action research. It's the researchers saying, here's this thing that we did, not this thing that we found. Case studies are things that you find. A worked example is the exact opposite. A worked example is where you demonstrate a technique by doing it yourself. The trouble is that people call worked examples case studies, but you get very different understanding of how a technique works if you follow the two approaches. So like take risk assessment. If you do a worked example of risk assessment, it means that researchers pick the technique, researchers apply it, they have as much time as they need, they use an example they've picked themselves, usually with all of the messy details stripped out of it, and they've picked an example that they know the technique is going to work on. If you do a case study of risk assessment, you go and find someone in the real world who is doing risk assessment and you see exactly what they're doing. You notice 
practitioners who don't have any special training in what they're doing with limited information, limited time, real-world social pressures and organisational pressures. And both techniques give you just views of risk assessment that are so different you don't even notice that they're the same thing. Um, if you just stick to reading papers about risk assessment and you read the ones with worked example, you get this idea that risk assessment, the biggest problem that researchers need to solve, the big challenge, is about getting the right notations and mathematical techniques. There's a real need in the literature to have a more precise way to define uncertainty and to work out the difference between probability and uncertainty. And there's a big academic debate about whether the best thing to do is to integrate uncertainty into risk assessment or whether to sort of separate it out and do a risk study and an uncertainty study. That's what risk assessment looks like in the academic community. And they have whole conferences about this. If you look at the real world of risk assessment, you realise that no one ever does any of these techniques that the academics are talking about. And if you do that, you're pretty much going to conclude that the biggest problem with risk assessment is that people do risk assessments after the decision has already made. So this idea about exactly how do we define and document uncertainty is meaningless compared to the actual challenges of real-world risk assessment. And I think that sort of just highlights what we're getting at with this problem. Yeah. Is... You, worked examples are good for explaining or teaching how to do a technique. But if you want to know what the problems are that need to be solved, you've got to do case studies. Yeah, That's a good description, Drew. Thanks. I think I've, I've, I think I've got it clear now. Um, we might move on from a time point of view as well. As well. So the seventh, the last commitment we had, which is, um, which is nice and friendly, is that we will treat practitioners as respected partners. So there's a Implicit maybe um, assumption in there that Drew, maybe today we feel sometimes that the research community is not treating the safety practitioners as respected partners. Would you would you sort of agree? I would agree. And I don't think that this comes from academic ag arrogance. I don't think that the researchers realise it. Um, but they're treating practitioners like misbehaving children. You, they think that the researcher's job is to work out how to do it. And the practitioner's job is to learn that from the researchers and do it. And if the practitioners aren't doing it right, then they need to learn better. And so even when researchers think that they are respecting practitioners, they're respecting them in the way that a teacher respects their students, not the way a partner respects a partner. And I, did, I don't just blame the academics for this. I think a lot of practitioners, they obviously see the respect in the opposite direction but they treat safety knowledge as if it's this fixed thing where either you know how to do it or you want someone to tell you how to do it. But if someone's not telling you how to do it, then they don't know anything worth knowing. Yeah, there's this confusion, I think, between you know, the safety academic community, Drew, that are you know, trying to actually come up with the new techniques and come up with the new practices and, and like you said, then, uh, then be in a position to be able to tell the safety practitioners what to do. But... Um, you know, that's not really the role that academics play in any other discipline. You know, in any other discipline, the, whether it's, you know, medicine, we use medicine as an early example. You know, the, re the researchers in medicine aren't trying to teach surgeons how to be better surgeons. You know, they're, they're coming up with knowledge that, that can then inform the practitioners to um, advance their own practice, you know, as the experts that they are. And if you doubt the value of that, just think of the difference that germ theory made to the practice of surgery. <laughs> And this is what we're talking about, is germ theory is understanding what's going on. That knowledge drastically changes practice, drastically improves practice. 
and does it without academics ever having to publish standards and papers about correct hand washing technique. It, it's the generation of knowledge that's valuable. And, and this needs uh, what, what we've talked about in the paper is like knowledge producing partnerships rather than leader follower relationships. Researchers should be helping practitioners measure and evaluate interventions that the practitioners already want to do. Researchers shouldn't be coming along and saying, let me come into your organization and try out my new technique. And organizations should stop demanding that of researchers. Stop believing that research only has value if it's going to come in and propose some big revolutionary change. And there's quite a lot underneath this, Drew, that needs to change in terms of these knowledge producing partnerships. You know, the, um, yeah, I would say that a large part of the practitioner community has no understanding or interface in any way with the academic community. And, you know, the academic researchers are, are really only just dipping in and dipping out to the practitioner community when they need them for individual studies. And that is, it, it doesn't seem to be, you know, many mechanisms in place for large scale ongoing relationships between the practitioner community and, and the research community. So something, something quite significant there needs to change, um, I think, to actually create that partnership. Yeah, I have to admit that I, I try hard not to be a university education snob. And I truly don't believe that universities are the only place to get knowledge or that we should prioritise university knowledge over practically learnt knowledge or self-education or any other form of knowledge. But the big thing that happens when you have an entire field where only a small subset of it have been to university is most people have this weird idea of how universities work. Um, on the one hand, they pay universities not enough respect. On the other hand, they pay it way too much respect. And they do each in the wrong order. order. They sort of criticise the universities for things they shouldn't be criticising them for and don't criticise them for the things that they really should be criticising them for. And so having this sort of clearer idea about the relationship between general knowledge, which is what universities produce, and specific applied knowledge, which is what practitioners produce, and how those link together, I think is the key to making this relationship work in future. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, our podcast is a small part of trying to connect some of these communities together, and you know, hopefully we can do some, some bigger things down the track. So Drew, these seven commitments that we, we, we make and we propose others to make in the manifesto, number one, we will investigate work as our core object of interest. Number two, we will describe current work before we prescribe changes. Number three, we'll investigate and theorize before we start to measure. Number four, I'm just scrolling down now. There it is. We will directly observe the practices that we investigate. Number five, we will position each piece of research in the appropriate parent discipline or within the appropriate parent discipline. Number six, when researching safety methods, we will prioritize real world case studies. And number seven is we will treat practitioners as respected partners. So these are seven commitments and, and you know, they might, they might sound like they make sense, but I don't want to undersell to our listeners just how significant a departure these commitments would be from probably, you know, to a large extent, the majority of safety science research is going on around the world. So when we were preparing the episode, I cut and paste the entire conclusions of the paper into our C segment which I'm not going to go through um, in the interest of both time and not boring the readers. But I would encourage anyone who's listening to the podcast to have a close think about those seven commitments and whether you think you can get on board. Because I think the power of a manifesto, and this is particularly what we saw in the Agile Manifesto, isn't that everyone agrees. It's that people think hard about what this says 
about current practice, what you like about it, what you don't like about it. And it allows people who want to do things differently, who want to strive to be better together, to form communities of practice around those commitments. So particularly, uh, I know we've got some listeners who are either doing research or thinking of doing research. Uh, They're the ones who are most strongly encouraged to take these commitments. And if you want to break one of those commitments, do it in the knowledge that we are warning you about mistakes that people have made. Uh, It's always fine to break rules so long as you first understand the rule and know that you're not just breaking it in the same way that many other people have made the same mistake, but you're genuinely being innovative in the way that you break it. I think the other people that we'd particularly like to think about the manifesto are people who are regulating and funding research. We don't want to be the like epistemological or ideological police for research, but we do think that it's always important for people who are spending money to think about what quality looks like and what they really want to get out of it. And one of the things that we've tried to show in this manifesto is just asking for research with real-world results and implications and application isn't asking for the best research. We've put up our vision of what we think good research does look like, um, and we challenge people who are funding research to do the same. Don't want to adopt this? Pick your own. But do set out a clear earmark for what quality looks like and stand by it when you're funding research. Yeah, Drew, I think just um, my my sort of final comments as well would be for the practitioners, you know, I don't know... You know how many how many maybe downloaded this uh this podcast with the title or or have, or have listened all the way through um because we've been talking about research but I strongly encourage the practitioner community to get involved and get connected with uh with what's happening in the research community and demand demand better research um put your hand up and and find ways to get involved yourself or get the data um, the case studies from within your own organisations you know get draw researchers towards you because uh. We actually need um, the practitioners to be pulling more for for the research, so that we can actually get we can get to the work, we can get to the case studies, we can get to all these things that are going to give us far better safety theories um, because we'll have far better better data to work with. Yeah, if if you reward the researchers who are doing the right thing, even if you're just rewarding them by giving them your time and attention, then you're going to get more of the type of research which is useful for you. Otherwise, if you just like complain about research and complain about academics without rewarding the ones who are trying to do the right thing, then we're just going to get more of the same. So I think for really interested to see how, how you found the episode. Uh, if, you, if you have had a chance to, to read the manifesto, then, um, then let us know your feedback. You can, you can as the authors, you can um, get in touch with, with us at the show if you can't access the manifesto and we can send that, send that through to you as well. Um, but really, really keen to know what you what you think of the manifesto, what your experience is with with safety science research, what you'd like to see uh, with research going forward, and what you think the big questions, you know, for our discipline are in relation to safety would all be. You know, we'd love to hear all of those things. Drew, any anything you'd like to you'd like to ask? Uh, no, I think that's it for this week. I think that means I'm the one who gets to say we hope you found this episode thought provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation or maybe in this case, hopefully, in shaping your own research. Send any comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. 